We continue this morning working our way through Mark's gospel. We are in chapter 10, and we will be looking together at the first 16 verses. Mark's gospel, chapter 10, verses 1 through 16. Let's pray together. Our Father, we long for the return of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our blessed hope is before us. Keep our gaze there in all of life. But as we occupy until Christ comes, help us to be faithful as we look forward to walk now in the presence of the Spirit with the blessed work of the Holy Spirit gripping our hearts, applying the word to us, and may that be true in the home and in the family. May it be true in this church family. And Heavenly Father, if there are those here today who are not a member of the family of God by faith in Jesus Christ, we pray that even as these simple matters but crucial matters are addressed, they may be drawn out of darkness and into light. For only God can save a soul. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, beginning with verse 1. This is the Word of God. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, He taught them, and Pharisees came up and, in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God." Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, beginning with Mark's gospel, the 10th chapter, as the Lord Jesus moves toward the cross, the tension mounts. The tension mounts in the mind of Jesus, and therefore it also mounts in the minds of the readers of Mark's gospel. And yet it is as he is moving toward the cross that Jesus teaches some of the most important ethical 
issues that we need to know as believers in our Savior. You see, he was not self-centered, he was not self-absorbed, even though he was going to the cross and there be sacrificed and bear the wrath of God. He was the servant of Jehovah, and he was the servant of others. And so he takes time to answer questions about marriage and about children. And what we should understand is that all of this is related intimately to the cross of our Savior. The Christian's ethic is determined by the indicative, what Christ did when he went to the cross and rose from the dead. It has no independent significance. The Christian faith is not first about how we live. It is about what Christ did. And then how we live is determined by what he did for us. So here, the, these radical ethical kingdom values are applied to the basic themes of marriage and children. And so we come to this text. It's not a difficult text. It's not esoteric in any way. It has very few complicated questions, but boy, is it needed. The first thing we see is marriage. Marriage. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, three times this verb test is used of the Pharisees. But the first time that we see that word is when Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness. And it's perhaps Mark wanting his readers to think behind this test of the Pharisees is the tempter because they want to catch Jesus saying something against the law. They want to kill him. Their purpose is to make a case to kill him. Their question shows that their hearts are far, far from God. So to speak, with a Bible in their hand, they miss the entire point of marriage as they raise this question with the Lord Jesus. Now, divorce was a major point of debate among them. The school of Shammai was a school that taught that marriage may be dissolved only for adultery or serious moral failure. The rabbinic school of Hillel taught that divorce could happen, a man divorcing his wife, for very insignificant and trivial, and trivial grounds. If she burned the supper, uh, if uh, he liked the looks of another better, uh, then he could divorce his wife. And the debate revolved around Deuteronomy chapter 24.1. Now, this is what Deuteronomy 24.1 says. If a man marries a woman who became displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, and so forth. So the debate was around the meaning of something indecent. If the man finds something indecent in his wife... But remember, their purpose is to catch Jesus in his words. And so what does the Lord Jesus do? Immediately, he goes right to the heart. And he says here in verse 5, And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. The function of this law, Jesus lets them know in these very few words, was God's protection of the woman. Not so that the woman could be easily set aside by a frivolous divorce. The law permitted, but it did not encourage divorce. 
you have twisted the law and you have done this for an easy access to divorce. And so your hearts, Jesus says, are hard. That's why this particular law was given under the hand of Moses in the beginning. You have interpreted the law as divine approval for sin. And so they are guilty of scripture twisting, taking the Bible, the word of God, and twisting it to fit their own desires and sinful longings. Jesus teaches that the kingdom values, however, are a restoration of originally intended God-given good, good commandments for us. Isn't this what redemption in Christ does now? You know, no one has said this better than Herman Bavink when he says in his dogmatics, the essence of the Christian religion consists in the reality that the creation of the Father ruined by sin is restored in the death of the Son of God and recreated by the grace of the Holy Spirit into a kingdom of God. And so that includes marriage and what God expects of believers as we walk in this world in our homes. So like people who want to ask, how close can I get to a thing without actually sinning? Has your heart ever been there? They want to establish divorce and Jesus wants to talk about marriage. If you get that right, then you get the divorce question right. They wanted to avoid an honest heart. Jesus takes them to the source of truth. And so he quotes to them Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24 that was read by Pastor McDonald this morning. And he does this in verses 5 through 8. Look at it again. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. He, his appeal goes all the way back to God's creation of man and woman and God's creation ordinance of marriage. This is what God intends marriage to be. You have forgotten all about the creation ordinance that God has ordained. John Murray puts it this way, marriage is grounded in this male and female constitution. Before I go on with this quote, that is something about which there should be no confusion in any Christian mind or heart. God created man, male, and female. There is incredible confusion in our culture about that very simple, basic creation fact. And there should be no confusion in our minds about this. God created man, male, and female. So to go on with Murray, Marriage is grounded in this male and female constitution. As to its nature, it implies that the man and the woman are united in one flesh. As to its sanction, it is divine. And as to its continuance, it is permanent. The import of all this is that marriage, from its very nature and from the divine nature by which it is constituted, is ideally indissoluble. It is not a contract of temporary convenience and not a union that may be dissolved at will. And so what the Lord Jesus teaches to these Pharisees and teaches to his disciples and others who also are there 
is a call for marriage to be bound by love and also by a deep abhorrence of a low regard and esteem for women. Everywhere the gospel of Jesus Christ has gone, everywhere that it has been preached on and believed, and especially in the Reformed world, wherever the gospel has gone and has been believed, the result has always been a high esteem for womanhood. Young men then who are here today, and especially as you think toward marriage, you should conduct yourself around young women in a way that shows your concern to reflect Jesus' high esteem for women. And young women, you should do nothing to lower that esteem in the eyes of young men. Because as the Lord Jesus says here, marriage is not a contract. That's, that's what he's teaching. It's not a contract. Uh, it's not some kind of money-back guarantee. It's not a return if not satisfied, uh, trivial a kind of trial offer. It is a one flesh relationship between one man and one woman. And so in verse 9, when he says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This <clears throat> verb, join together, literally is to yoke together. So he's speaking of the husband and the wife as a pair. He's speaking of them as a team. As an indivisible unit, you may not simply go your own way. Behind its lifelong union and sanctity stands the authority of the Word of God. This is the way God intended it at creation. And so Jesus' kingdom values must have been shocking even to his disciples especially in view of the fact that the viewpoint of Hillel was very widely held, which had a low esteem for women and a low regard for marriage. In verse 11, he said to them, he's back in the house with his disciples, they've asked him about this, and he says to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So to marry someone after divorcing your wife is to break the seventh commandment. Indeed, he says divorcing the wife is a breach of the seventh commandment, which reflects God's intention in the creation ordinance. This offense against the wife is ultimately an offense against God who made man male and female and who ordained marriage. And this was totally outside the rabbi's teaching. It shows God's original intent for marriage, it shows Jesus' authority, and it shows the power of redemption through the cross of Christ that we fallen sinners now through the work of the Holy Spirit can receive this word and we can have marriages that begin to honor and glorify the Lord. By the way, verse 12 reflects the situation among the Gentiles when it speaks of the wife divorcing her husband, which happened in the Gentile world, it was very, very prevalent in Rome, if you've ever read anything on the culture of Rome. It reflects the situation then among the Gentiles, contemplating a wife divorcing her husband. That is what Herodias had done, you might remember, and this is why she wanted John the Baptist murdered, because John the Baptist called her out and called the, the, the act out for what it was which was a breach of God's law and an adulterous act. So, for a husband to superfluously, selfishly divorce his wife is a grievous sin. 
against God and against his wife. It is a grievous sin, and it leaves the deepest heartache, pain, and sorrow, confusion, devastation, and life complication in its wake. For a man to do this is ungodly, and for a man to do this is unmanly. Now, God can save from this too. He can save any lost sinner. He can save a man who has totally set aside what God wants and desires, and he can bring him back to what God desires and wants. He can change hearts, but it doesn't erase the situation that has already happened. It can save a man, it can give him a new direction, but that pain and heartache is there. Now, this is not all that the scriptures teach on the matter of divorce. As your pastor, my heart breaks for the number of women in particular and some men among us who have gone through the tragedy of divorce, forced upon them by unfaithful spouses. To you, the Lord expresses omnipotent compassion, and there are many situations. Often, you know, often you hear, it's so flip, this idea, well, there has to be sin on both sides. Well, often there is, or sin that would bring this about, sin worthy of divorce, that kind of thing. No, no, let me tell you, how many times have I seen a godly wife, and sometimes the man, but a godly wife in particular, desiring the ways of the Lord, seeking to serve the Lord, and it is one-sided. That is often the case. And so, God offers to you, brings to you, shows to you through word and sacrament and the fellowship of his church and in so many ways of growth and maturity, he brings to you his omnipotent compassion. But this is not the time for me to expound everything the Bible says about the matter of divorce. I've done that numbers of times from this pulpit or a pulpit over the years. And it is time for me to say this, however, to the young people of our congregation that you must be committed to the kingdom values of God. Along with those kingdom values is no to divorce and God's decisive call for you to live redemptively when you marry, and you have to prepare for that now. You prepare for it by word and sacrament, by steeping your mind in the word, by having a mind and heart that is completely controlled by these things, to prepare for a marriage that is founded on the love of the cross of Jesus Christ. And what is that love? Well, I will tell you. God shows his love for us, says Paul in Romans 5. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I had the privilege in a recent wedding to say to the couple before me, There's one thing you need to remember in order that your marriage be what it needs to be. And that one thing that you need to remember when you get up in the morning, when you move through your day, when you live together, that one thing, no matter what you face, is the cross of Jesus Christ that calls upon a man to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her when he shed his blood on the cross and calls a wife to to 
respond to her husband in the way in which the church is called to respond to the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's marriage. Marriage and children belong together, and so the brief narrative that follows provides an appropriate sequel. So the second thing is children. Children. People brought their children to Jesus that he might bless them. Now it's interesting that this account in Luke, in Luke 18, verse 15, uses tabrephe, which means infants. So they were bringing children to him, but among those children were little children. They were infants. And to bless was the role of a father, and people wanted Jesus to show the fatherly care of God, to touch them, pray with them, care for them, speak truth to them. The disciples display their hard hearts, their lack of understanding of the place of children in the covenant. They did not want Jesus to be troubled, and the disciples rebuked the parents and others who were bringing the children. But Jesus will not hinder them. He will have them come. So what is the fundamental problem? A lot of things we could point out, but what is the fundamental problem here? Well, who is this that blesses the children, that receives the children? This is God in the flesh. He is the revealer of the Father. And when the disciples hinder the children from being brought to Jesus, they are saying, in effect, that Jesus and the Father do not want the children brought to God. Keep them at arm's length. They should not be brought to God. Now, God's character then would be totally misrepresented. God's grace is being denied here. And that Jesus comes, as Calvin often put it, Jesus comes clothed in his gospel is something that we should show to our children, whether we're pastors, elders, deacons, church members, and especially parents and grandparents, come to them clothed in the gospel. So little children that are here today, little children, I want you to know, you hear us talk about the covenant and covenant theology and children in the covenant, and we baptize our children because we believe the Bible says we should. I want you to know that Jesus wants you to know him. He wants you to continue as you grow, to come to him for his blessing. And parents, we should do all we can to see that we do not hinder them from coming. And that is why Jesus was indignant toward his disciples. Now, I want to bring you two conclusions from what happens here with these children and Jesus. The first is this, God gives his kingdom to children. He says so. It's here in verse 14. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. To such, to this class, to this sort. They have a rightful share in God's rule established in their lives. The covenant is behind this. God saying, I will be a God to you and to your children after you. In 1 Corinthians 7, 14, the children are spoken of as a holy seed. Not holy because they necessarily are regenerated or converted, but because they are placed in an atmosphere in which they are going to be saturated with the gospel and they will hear his promise through faithful parenting and faithful churches. God has will to give the kingdom to children of believers in him. 
So kingdom values mean that we see our children differently than our society sees children. And if you're a watcher of news or read headlines or read articles, I'm appalled, and I hope you are too, at how our children are viewed by our culture around us. You see, our, the Word of God says in Psalm 127, verse 3, Behold, children are in heritage of the Lord. And that being the case, they are not inconveniences. They are the heritage of the Lord. They do not belong. This needs to be underscored. They are, they, our children do not belong to the state either to be educated, to be, to be managed, to be abused. They do not belong to the state, but they are on loan from God to parents to love and to nurture. They are not to be sacrificed to self-centeredness, murdered in the womb or out of it. How Jesus clashed with the way children were viewed in the ancient world. There's a papyrus from 1 B.C., a papyrus that is dated June 17, 1 B.C., and it's from Alexandria. It's a letter from a husband to his expectant wife, and he supposes that she may already have had the child, and this is what he says, if it was a male child, let it live, if it was female, cast it out. That's not much different than our culture, is it? The epistle to Diognetus, this is from among the church fathers, speaking of how Christians live, this is in um, section 6, paragraph 6, says, they, speaking of Christians, they marry as all men, but they do not expose their offspring. So whether it was male or female, if a family didn't want the child, they would just leave the, the child to die. That happens too. I remember Dr. Beakey saying how shocked he was going into a hospital in California asking about this box that was outside. What's that box for? Oh, that's for people to leave their unwanted newborns. Well, I'm happy they're leaving it there, leaving the child in the hospital vicinity. But the attitude of the heart. So Christian ethics contrast with worldly ethics. Hamas rears children to hate Jews and want them all dead. Christians rear children to love the Lord their God with all their strength, heart, soul, mind, and their neighbor as themselves. You see, when the living, the true and living God is rejected, when his authority is rejected, when his word is rejected, then immorality becomes the new morality in a culture. I've told you how J. Gresham Machen spoke of the early church. He said, look, the early church was radically doctrinal. Life was founded on a message. The early church was radically intolerant. It was opposed to the spirit of the age. It proclaimed that Christ is the only way. And the early church was radically ethical, a salvation which permeated the, the, the whole idea in the early church was a salvation that actually changed lives. So if it permits a man to continue in sin, according to the primitive church, no matter what the profession of faith might be, it's nothing but a sham. 
So you see at every point when we are radically doctrinal, radically intolerant, radically ethical, we're going to love our children in a way that's not possible for the world. I'm not saying that non-Christian parents do not love children, but they don't do it to the glory of God. And so we parent and we shepherd our children in grace, and we have this antithesis. There is the viewpoint of the Bible, there is the viewpoint of the world, and they are at loggerheads. So we just need to come to grips with that. If we're going to be consistent and faithful Christian, we live by this antithesis. J.C. Ryle was an evangelical Anglican who, some of you have read, have read Ryle. Uh, he was reformed in his theology. And there's this really wonderful tract that he wrote on baptism. It should be republished as a booklet so that it would be widely available. But in that, uh, he's reformed in his theology. He's an Anglican, but he was, he was going back to the, to, the, to the Reformation and his views. And he references in passing this passage we have read about the children here in Mark. And then he talks about that in infant baptism. L listen to what he says. Now, I do not pretend for a moment to say that this passage is a direct proof of infant baptism. Now, he's already dealing with that, the biblical proofs for infant baptism. So I'm not saying this is a direct proof of it. It is nothing of the kind. But I do say that it supplies a curious answer to some of the arguments in common use among those who object to infant baptism. That infants are capable of receiving some benefit from our Lord, that the conduct of those who would have kept them from him was wrong in our Lord's eyes, that he was ready and willing to bless them even when they were too young to understand what he said or did. All these things stand out as clearly as if written as a sunbeam. A direct argument in favor of infant baptism, the passage certainly is not, but a stronger indirect testimony, it seems to me, impossible to conceive. Then he goes on in another place in this tract, and he talks about the, the really terrible views held by the clergy uh, about uh, the sacraments and about baptism that... Um, that was very damaging, a dangerous tendency of an extravagantly high view of the efficacy of baptism. And he says something else we need to hear. He says, they, these clergymen, help forward the perilous and soul-ruining delusion that a man may have grace in his heart while it cannot be seen in his life. Multitudes of our worshipers have not a spark of religious life or grace about them. And yet we are told that they must all be addressed as regenerate or possessors of grace because they have been baptized. Surely this is dangerous. So keep those things in mind in your child rearing. And so we parent and shepherd out of this antithesis. Now I told you two conclusions. That's one. Uh, this first conclusion is that God gives his kingdom to children. The second is that each of us is called to receive the kingdom as a child. And he says it here in verse 15. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not inherit it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. So you receive the children as a child. Now the typical view of what that means is, you see that little child, he's so humble and he's so innocent and and he just, he's willing to just, just receive any good thing that you say to him. He's, and, and as one of the commentators put it, he is tr in his trustful simplicity. I don't think that's what this means at all. 
I think what it means is it has, it has nothing to do with inner qualities. Children in that era, and remember, by the way, when I make this comment, our children are born sinners. They are born in original sin. They are not innocent and are capable of showing their sin nature in remarkable ways. What Jesus is saying is that children are considered least. They are considered weak. They are considered helpless and small and without claim and without merit. This is the heart that enters the kingdom. The heart that recognizes, I have no claim, I have no merit, I am just small, I am just weak. It's nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. That's the heart of a child that is mentioned here. And so, therefore, what Jesus says is pertinent to all people of all ages. R.T. France put it this way. The reason the disciples were unable to appreciate the significance of children in relation to the kingdom of God is that they themselves had not yet learned to receive it like children. Their grown-up senses of value prevented them from being in tune with God's value scale. So as we come to this table this morning, I come only in the righteousness of Christ. I have nothing to offer. Just as we pointed out in last week's sermon about justification, it is all of grace from first to last. And so note how the text concludes in verse 16. And he, that is Jesus, took them, that is the children, in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Now, this word bless in the Greek text is a word that has an intensifying preposition that is attached to it. So what it's saying to us is that he blessed the children fervently. So he receives them with all of his heart. He blessed them fervently. Well, Lord, I'm just a child. Will you bless me that way? But wait, hasn't he blessed us that way, believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? Has he not laid his powerful, all-merciful hand on us when he shed his blood on the cross, when he was raised from the dead, when the gospel was applied to our hearts by the Holy Spirit and continues to apply to, apply to our hearts by the Spirit of God? Is this not his hand of blessing? In this are we not truly blessed children of our heavenly Father. Amen.